This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today is May 31st, 2012. And our guest is Jim Thompson, founder and executive director of the Positive Coaching Alliance. The Alliance is a national nonprofit with a mission to provide all youth and high school athletes a positive character building youth sports experience. Since 1998, when it was founded, the Alliance has impacted more than 4 million athletes. Today, the initiative reaches youth and high school sports leaders, coaches, athletes, parents. It, it, it works through live workshops, online courses, published books and articles, and alliances with national youth sports organizations. Jim is a graduate of McAllister College and Stanford Business School. And before launching the Positive Coaching Alliance for more than 10 years, he was director of public and global management programs at Stanford, where he also taught courses in leadership and nonprofit. Jim is also an Ashoka Fellow, elected in 2004, and we share that. Um, Jim, I have four children, including a 17-year-old son who's been involved for years in youth basketball, and so your work really uh, reaches me on a personal level. And I understand, interestingly, that your son's experience with sports was part of what inspired you to create the Positive Coaching Alliance. And I wonder if maybe you could begin there and just tell us about the inspiration. Sure. Um, my son is now 34, believe it or not. So they were talking quite a few years ago. I um, My first job was working in a school for emotionally disturbed behavior problem kids in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, the Behavioral Learning Center. And I was trained to, um, you know, re- what I would call a relentlessly positive approach. These were very troubled kids who were bust from all around the city to a special school because they just could not be handled within the regular classroom. And uh, I was, you know, young, young kid, um, 20 something, and was trained in this approach. Um, really two components to it. One is you set limits. Kids can't just run wild. <clears throat> but within those limits, uh, everything positive the kids do, they got reinforced for. And these kids bloomed. I, I, I literally say bloomed like a, um, like a, uh, a plant. You know, you go away for a week and you haven't watered your house plant. You come back and you pour water on it and it just kind of, it, it flowers. Uh, that's what happened with these kids. And then fast forward a few years, my son is now, I'm a business school student at Stanford. My son is playing youth soccer, basketball, and baseball. And I start going to his games, and I'm, I'm just kind of stunned by the behavior of the parents and the coaches, violating everything I've learned, uh, I had learned up to that point, about how you get the best out of kids. So that's really the beginning of it. Um, I started using many of the ideas that I had uh, been trained in. They were for the classroom for disturbed kids. I found out that they worked on the playing field with so-called normal kids, um, you know, a positive coaching approach. Uh, the kids had a lot of fun. We won a lot of games. Parents wanted their kids on my team. And over time, I began to realize that there was a real opportunity. You know, Positive Coaching Alliance's mission is to use sports to develop better athletes and better people. 
And I saw that wasn't happening in most cases, so I saw a real opportunity here to uh, to use sports to create an organization, to create a movement, really, um, to to use sports as a youth development experience. Something I've heard you say, Jim, that I completely agree with, and I'd love to get you to expound on it. Uh, you said in substance that virtually everything you need to be successful in life can be learned through youth sports. And I think that's kind of a, it's a, it's a very powerful statement. I have my own perspective on why it's true. I'd love for you to share yours. Well, um, if we think about teachable moments, the, the time in our lives, times in our lives when we um, learn something that really stuck with us. You know, if you ask a, a person, uh, if I were to ask you what happened in your fourth grade math class, uh, my guess is you probably can't remember it. But if you were playing uh, baseball when you were 9 or 10 years old, you remember a lot of things. So um, somebody once said that sports is life with the volume turned up. Um, there's just a lot of symbolic meaning in our society around sports. And kids get that right away. They understand, wow, this is really important to my dad. This is really important to my, my coach. Um, and so it, that all of that creates an environment in which um, – Kids can, uh, well, and plus the other thing is that, that even though ultimately what happens on the playing field doesn't really matter, it doesn't matter who wins a t-ball game, um, but it feels like it matters. So all of that, uh, plus the endless procession of teachable moments, provide an opportunity for kids to learn uh, just incredible life lessons about resilience. You know, I know, I know we want to talk about empathy um, you know, learning to, to, uh, to dig down when things get, get tough. Um, I, I might've overstated a little bit with that statement because you probably can't learn theoretical physics on the playing field, but I'll tell you, you can learn the, the, the character traits, the determination you need to be able to persevere when you're studying something really complicated like theoretical physics. And what I think is captured in your statement, which is so true, is that in, in school, there's so much learning that we do that is about building intellectual skills and building knowledge. But the social and emotional learning that's so critical for success in life is something that we don't actually teach that well or with much planning in the classroom. And yet, I think what your statement captures is how powerful sports is as a laboratory for the social and emotional learning, teamwork, showing up, being part of a group that has a goal, and then managing the complexity of people being engaged in a task, and as their contribution ebbs and flows, and how you manage the conflict that arises from that. I mean, I think you're really onto something very, very powerful there. And and yet I do think what's interesting about your statement also is that it's like this huge opportunity, but on the other hand, we unfortunately, because of cultural things and the way we approach it, we see that opportunity squandered quite a bit. And I wonder if you know you could comment on that. Uh, and particularly, I mean, this whole idea of teachable moments. And maybe one way of going at that to advance the conversation would be to talk about double goal coaching, which I think is such a critical principle in your work. Yeah, let me just let me just start by talking about uh, Carol Dweck's work. Carol is a, a psychologist at Stanford, and she's on our uh, Positive Coaching Alliance's National Advisory Board. 
I just talked to her last week uh, about how to use her ideas in our, our training. A double goal coach is someone who uh, has a first goal of winning. You're trying to, you're competing, you're trying to win on the scoreboard. But the second more important goal is to use sports to teach life lessons. Uh, Phil Jackson, our national spokesperson, had a and just a wonderful statement. He said, not only is there more to life than basketball, there's more to basketball than basketball. <laughs> right. <laughs> if, if all kids are learning about uh, in basketball is basketball or in soccer is soccer, they're missing something. So just one, one re- very good example, we're developing um, a, a network of youth sports organizations and coaches across the country, parents as well, um, who, are, who we're partnering with and are using our ideas. So when we come across some really big ideas like Carol Dweck's uh, about mindset, you know, she, she says there's two kinds of mindsets. There's a fixed mindset in which you say to yourself, well, I'm smart or I'm not. I'm a good athlete or I'm not. And it doesn't really matter how hard I work at it. I either am or I'm not versus a growth mindset where I can get better. I can get smarter if I work hard at it. I can get better as an athlete if I work hard on it. Now, that idea is a very powerful idea. And we use our workshops, our relationships with coaches and youth sports leaders, et cetera, to communicate uh, ways that you can build a growth mindset in, in your players so that they... Uh, then we'll not only use the growth mindset to work hard to get better in in their sport, but they can carry that over to other parts of their life. Um, Again, because there's so much symbolic meaning around sports in our society and kids, first of all, love to play sports until it's, you know, the the joy is driven out of them by a nasty, snarly coach. Um, So it's just a great opportunity to build in things like uh, a growth mindset, a teachable spirit, uh, one of our concepts is uh, that every every player, every every person really, but every kid has a, an emotional tank, like the gas tank in a car. And if you fill that emotional tank, they're going to do better. They're going to respond to um, with resilience when they come uh, confronted with um, adversity. So, um, you know, sports is just a fantastic place to to teach all those things. If as you say, so many of those moments are squandered. If the the adults involved with youth sports see themselves as character educators, prepare themselves to understand how to do it, and then seize the seize the moments. Another another element of this that I've heard you talk about is how PCA uses a systems approach to its work. I think part of that systems approach means really focusing on organizational culture. And obviously, you've given some really good examples of of organizational culture or the way that organizational culture makes choices that perhaps sometimes don't always support this kind of learning and ways that it can be tweaked so that it does do a better job of supporting those teachable moments. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you approach that concept of organizational culture and maybe so like from a from a theory point of view how do you do it and then maybe give us some actual examples of that work in action. Well, you're right about a systems approach. Uh, one of the reasons a systems approach in youth sports is so crucial is because although it looks like a very simple enterprise, you know, kids get together, they have a coach, they, they compete against another team, psychologically, it's an incredibly complex undertaking. 
So think about it. You got the parents who were good athletes or were not good athletes, but most parents did not uh, achieve the level of success as an athlete that they wish they had achieved. Right. John, John Gardner once, once told me um, the toughest thing for kids is to deal with their parents' unrealized dreams. Ah, yeah, terrific so, statement. So you got parents coming to see their kids play, and in a public forum, you know, a kid doesn't do well on a spelling test. Nobody, nobody knows about it except the kid and the, you know, report card, et cetera. If a kid does poorly on the playing field, it's public. So, so whether parents realize it or not, they come in with anxieties and and like uh, hypersensitive to unfairness to their kid. The coaches are totally in a fishbowl. Um, you know, one of my favorite sayings is, uh, I'll ask you the question, what's the easiest team to coach? And uh, the, an- the answer is somebody else's team. All right. <laughs> so you got parents in the, in the, on the stand on the sidelines and they're saying, what is that coach doing? You know, right. what a stupid move. Um, and then once you start coaching yourself, you realize, geez, it's a lot more complicated. So you got the coaches on display and, you know, their self-worth might be tied to how well their team does. And then you got kids who are kind of like, uh, thought this was supposed to be fun, but boy, this is, uh, this is a pressure cooker. So psychologically, there's a lot going on there. If you don't take a systems approach, you're not going to be successful. So we start with the leaders, the leaders of the youth sports organization. And this is where the organizational culture comes in. Start with the leaders and we uh, hit the coaches, we hit the parents and then the athletes. So with the leaders, organizational culture is really crucial. And there's a lot of really interesting uh, ways to describe organizational culture. Uh, the one that, that I really like is culture is the way we do things here. Right. And every organization has a culture. Often it's kind of sloppily developed and it's inconsistent. But the great organizations have a, a coherent, consistent culture that is defended. So um, in, in organizational culture, there are three steps to it. One is um, setting the table. You know, if you are invited to dinner at the White House, you're probably going to dress differently than if you go down to the local fast food place to have dinner. You're probably going to be more concerned about your table manners. You're going to, you know, read everything you can about it to, you know, what's the proper uh, way to behave. Uh, the way you set the table helps determine how people behave. So through message bombardment, you know, we're an organization honors a game. You know, we. Uh, you know, we fill kids' emotional tanks. Those messages are repeated over and over and over again so that people understand uh, what's expected of them. But once you set the table, um, you're going to have violations of the culture because, after all, people are human, and we're talking about their own kids, their own flesh and blood, and so they're, they're, they're hypersensitive. Um, so the second step after you establish a culture, you set the table, is – what we call fixing broken windows. And this mm-hmm. comes from the, the broken windows theory of crime fighting. Right. Um, and you you may be familiar with it. And George Kelling, people, right? George Kelling. So, right. Some of your listeners may also. The simple uh, description of it is they d- uh, discovered that uh, – think of me as a bad guy. I'm going into a neighborhood. Yep. <clears throat> I'm going to do my bad deeds. I look around and I see there's, there's uh, garbage on the ground. There's graffiti on the wall. There's broken windows. I conclude that this is a place where people aren't really paying much attention so I can do my bad deeds. Right. I go into a different neighborhood where the, the no garbage on the ground, no graffiti, no broken windows. I'm still a bad guy. 
But right. now I'm thinking, hmm, I better I better be more careful here, or maybe better yet, I'll go back to the other neighborhood. Right. When you have a broken window that's not fixed, the culture starts to degrade almost immediately. Yeah. So, uh, and I saw this actually with with a, a friend of mine <laughs> several years ago. Her daughter was playing um, softball for the first time, and she 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 and I were standing there, and and there was a bad call, and she said, "Wow, that was a really bad call," and um, you know. I could see that if, if the league didn't create a culture where it's it's not okay, it's not the way we do things here to yell at the official, you know, right now her kid is only five years old, but three or four or five years from now, she might be screaming at the official. So the broken windows in youth sports are things like parents screaming at an official, a coach really, you know, going after a kid verbally, and those those broken windows need to be fixed. There needs to be an intervention so that, right. um, you know, if you and I are parents, our kids are playing on the same team and I start losing it, you know, the best thing that happened is for you to say, hey, Jim, remember, we want to be a we want to set a good example for our kids. We want to honor the game here. Like, oh, OK. Um, so first, set the set the table expectations. Secondly, have a system for intervening when people violate those expectations and then thirdly, you've got to build it into the, the institutional pillars of the organization. Often what happens is you'll have one or two leaders of an organization, a youth sports organization, who are really committed. We're going to make this happen. Um, but if they don't build it into the institutional pillars, you know, a year or two later, they may be gone and the culture goes away. So uh, that, those are the three steps. Uh, set the table, fix broken windows, and build it into the institutional pillars. And when you see that happening, then coaches, parents, athletes all get signals for how to behave. They get re reinforced for behaving in the right way. And you can tell a difference. Makes total sense. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. Now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and Jim Thompson, founder of the Positive Coaching Alliance. One of the things I've heard you talk about, and I think this is an example of shifting or changing the culture, is the, I guess what you describe as the win-at-all-costs culture versus a culture that has uh, other goals including winning but adding in some other goals as well, a balance with winning and other objectives. And then I think it's great because what I've heard you say is in essence what we're doing is we're challenging people to think more broadly, what does it mean to win? So I wonder if you could talk about that and talk about what are some of those other things that now get included in the concept of winning when you succeed in evolving the culture in the right direction. 
Yeah, the, the key idea here is what we call the, the elm tree of mastery. Mm. There's a lot of research from 20, 30 years of uh, studies in sports psychology that you get better results from mastery. Mm. Um, we, we talk about the two definitions of winning, the, um, the scoreboard definition and the mastery definition. So the elm tree of mastery stands E for effort. You give your best effort every time. L for learning and improvement. You never stop learning. You have a teachable spirit. And M for bouncing back from mistakes. E for effort, L for learning, M for bouncing back from mistakes. Um, that, those are the core elements of mastery. If you enter anything, theoretical physics, learning a new language, uh, playing a sport, and you approach it with the elm tree in mind, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my best effort here no matter what. Uh, I'm going to continue to learn and improve. You know, we're getting killed here. We're, we're behind 10 to nothing. It's the first inning. Uh, but I don't care. I'm going to learn something here. And then when I make a mistake, I develop the mental toughness to be able to bounce back from that mistake and focus on the next play. You do that, the research now shows that you actually win more on the scoreboard if you focus on mastery rather than, than on winning. Now, of course, if you know, our teams are playing and, and your team has got incredibly talented players um, and maybe you're not focusing on mastery and I have weaker players and I'm focusing on mastery. You know, usually the team has better talent wins, but everything else being equal, um, you're going to win more by focusing on mastery rather than focusing on winning. Can you talk, I think in this context would be a great place to really talk specifically about empathy. And I know that you have talked a lot about filling up the emotional tank uh, which is obviously part of having empathy for the kids that are engaged in the sport. I wonder if you could talk about empathy in terms of how you promote empathy as a virtue that is part of elevating the game and perhaps how you get people to have em- to see empathy as a value alongside winning. How does that work out and is that a hard sell sometimes and you know how do you how do you guys navigate the mental models that people have about winning and toughness and along alongside with having a bigger picture uh, about what it means to win that's maybe more inclusive and more caring about everyone that's in the game. Well, the, um, the concept of emotional intelligence uh, covers a, a lot of ground. There's a lot of lot to that. Um, and, but over the past decade or so, it's it's generally been recognized that emotional intelligence is is really crucial. It's not just how much brain power you have. If you can't get along with other people, if you can't well work well with other people, then um, you're not gonna you're not gonna be successful, no matter how smart you are. Um, so being able to teach kids to be good teammates, to work well with people. Um, you know, you, you start you start with empathy. Empathy being the ability to put yourself in somebody else's place and try to imagine what what um, what they're going through. Um, sports is a fantastic place to 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 work on empathy. First of all, for your teammates, what does your teammate need um, to be successful here? Mm. Um, and you know, I, I think of. You, know, you mentioned Elevating Your Game, which is the, the title of my latest book for high school athletes, Elevating Your, ca- your Game, Becoming a Triple Impact Competitor. The three levels of being uh, a triple impact competitor. First level is make yourself better. Second level is make your teammates better. And the third level is make the game better. Uh, 
Right. So if you want if you want to elevate the game of your teammates, you've got to understand what the what their problems are. So if a if a if you have a um, a player who a teammate who's not very good under pressure, and your teammate gets fouled near the end of the game, and if he makes his one and one free throws, you got a really good chance of winning the game. If he misses, you don't. Um, if you don't have empathy, you just like oh he's a lousy free throw shooter. Right. If you if you have empathy for the player, you could say, okay, I actually could say something here that could help him uh, fill his emotional tank and be more likely to make those free throws. Right. Um, I also think that the third level of uh, making the game better requires empathy. Um, there's a you know kind of an iconic moment that happened uh, three or four years ago um, when. With a, it was a, a Division II college soccer game between Central Washington University and Western Oregon University, and uh, Sarah Tukulski, who was a, not a, not exactly a star, didn't play a lot on her team, uh, but she got up in the first or second inning, a couple of her teammates on base, and hit a home run. And it turned out it was the first home run of her entire life. She'd never hit a home run in any level before. This was a really important game that was going to help determine which of those teams would go on to the NCAA playoffs. Um, well, she was so excited when she rounded first, she she missed first base. So she turns to go back to first base, and her ACL uh, gives out, and she goes down in a clump in a lot of pain. Ah. Um, Mallory Holtman, the first baseman for Central Washington, uh, now, incidentally, their head coach, one of the youngest head coaches in NCAA history, um, she comes up to the first base umpire, and she said, well, you know, could we help her? Mm. If, any, if any of Sarah's teammates helped her, there would be an automatic out. Um, and the umpire says, well, I guess so. And so she, she and a teammate uh, go to Sarah and pick her up and help her. They carry her and allow her to put her good foot down on each base so she gets her home run. Mm. Now, now, we call that the Mallory moment. Mm. And we challenge athletes and coaches, for that matter, too, um, Mallory Holtman had the opportunity to elevate the game in that situation. Nobody would have criticized her if she'd have done nothing, and nobody would have remembered her either. Right. Uh, but she had an ch- opportunity to elevate the game, and you have to think that her empathy for Sarah, um, her opponent, had a piece of that. It's like, isn't this awful? She hit a home run, and she earned it, but she's not able to complete her home run, so I'm going to... I'm going to help her in that situation. So we tell athletes, the longer, as long as you keep competing, sooner or later you're going to have a Mallory moment. You're going to have an opportunity to elevate the game or not. You're going to have an opportunity to do something that makes the game better and everybody can feel proud of. So powerful. And, and this is really the, the goal line of introducing this idea of moral courage as being one of the um, things that, is part of the the double goal building building character as well as building athletes that have the the sporting skills. So uh, yeah, ter- just so it's such an inspiring story and it's such a great uh, concept to, to to work in. And and that is part of your book that that concept of building moral courage and the Mallory moment that's included in your latest book uh, about triple impact uh, being a triple impact competitor. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned moral courage. Um, we contrast moral courage with physical courage. When most people talk about courage, they're thinking about physical courage. Um, they, um, 
you know, I always think of a fireman going into a building to rescue a, into a burning building to rescue a baby. Um, that is, that kind of physical courage is, is, is incredible and wonderful. There's another kind of courage that we often don't have, and that is really to go against the grain of our, of our tribe. Um, and moral courage is being willing to stand up for what's right, even when your friends, your tribe members, your teammates right. uh, don't agree with you. And, you know, you, you kind of wonder what uh, Mallory Holtman's teammates might have been thinking about, you know, because they want to win this game, you know, Division Two softball game, who cares? They cared. Um, and you kind of wonder about, you know, what her teammates thought when she was helping the opposition uh, score a run that they might not have otherwise scored. Um, the, 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 the iconic example is um, Jackie Robinson and Pee Wee Reese. Jackie Robinson, when he broke into baseball, is the first African-American player. Right. Uh, lots of nasty, nasty stuff, including his own teammates, who many of whom said they didn't want to play with him. And Pee Wee Reese, uh, a Kentucky kid, so he's, he's raised in the South, and um, you know, he, he went out of his way to publicly support Jackie Robinson, you know, don't want to, uh, minimize Jackie Robinson's courage at all. Cause it took incredible courage on his part, but also, uh, Pee Wee Reese stood up and said, this guy, I'm the captain of this team. This guy is, uh, uh, I want him on my team. He's good enough to be a player. Uh, he stood up for him and he went against his own tribe um, with moral courage. And again, that's tied to empathy and our society, our world desperately needs more people with moral courage. Right. It's really, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it does require empathy at a deep level and it also really requires that expansive concept of what is the game about? Like, what does it mean to win? I think you have such a great concept there of getting beyond the normal concept of winning, win at all costs, you know, beat your opponent to the idea of winning because we're developing, uh, elevating the game and growing as people and becoming better, if not the best, you know, that, 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 that our mission is to become better, not necessarily to be the best. And um, I, I, I want something I'd love for you to talk about, too, because I think it's such a great um concept and you verbalized it so well i don't know if you invented this but the line that says a worthy opponent is a gift which i think also gets to the same point of how can you be in a game that perhaps you're losing or be very challenged uh maybe because your teammates are still developing uh, but nevertheless see, see that as such a rich experience and and fun that f you can have fun when you're growing and learning and perhaps losing, it can still be fun for you. Could you talk about that? Yeah, the 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 uh, root word competition. Uh, competition. If you go back to Latin, it it uh, it means striving together. Um, and if you think about it, you know, if you and I are, are table tennis players and you're really good and I'm not, that's not much fun. <clears throat> you know, even for you, <laughs> it's right. kind of boring. Um, <laughs> We cannot be, um, you know, Doc Rivers, the Boston Celtics coach, who's a, a, a member of Positive Coaching Alliance's National Advisory Board and just a huge uh, advocate for positive coaching because he's seen the impact of negative coaching on his own kids, all of whom played Division One sports. 
um, you know, he uh, he has this concept called uh, Umbutu, uh, which is an African word that means, in effect, I can't be all I can be unless you are all you can be. Right. So if, you know, I think about when uh, Phil Jackson first started coaching Michael Jordan and he got through to Michael Jordan by saying, look, Michael, you want to be the best player ever. You have the opportunity to be the best player ever. But that's measured on championships, not just on individual statistics. And if you can't make your teammates better, you're not going to be the best ever. Yeah. And that got through to Michael Jordan. So this concept of um, if I want – well, let me, let me ask, ask you this, David. This is a little bit of a trick question. What's the easiest way to win a game? Uh, play a lousy opponent, I guess. Uh... You're right. <laughs> That's right. You know, people will often say cheat or whatever, right. but the easiest way is to schedule a game against a really weak opponent. Right. And that proves nothing. So you um, you want to play against uh, someone who is going to push you to be your best, uh, and that really is a gift. Someone who makes you better is a gift. Absolutely. Absolutely. Such a inspiring thought. Let, let me ask you this because we're coming, I think, to the end of our time. But what I would really love to do is leave listeners with a little roadmap if they want to learn more about this. Uh, and let's maybe we could do it in different audiences. If you could tell me if I'm a coach, if I'm a parent, if I'm an athlete, where should I go to learn more about positive coaching? So our website www.positivecoach.org and it's segmented by U sports leaders, coaches, parents, athletes. Um, you know, we talked about the double goal coach model. Uh, we're, we're big advocates of mental models. Peter Senge of MIT yes. uh, wrote a book called Fifth Discipline, talks about the power of mental models. So the mental model for a coach is winning and life lessons, life lessons being the most important. The model for athletes we talked about, triple impact competitor. I want to aspire to get better myself, to make my teammates better, to make the game better, and ultimately our world better. Uh, for parents, we have what we call the second goal parent. We'll, we'll uh, again, another trick question. I'll explain to parents what a double goal coach is, winning life lessons, and then I'll say, so as parents, should you be double goal parents? And, of course, they all say yes, and I say, well, no, actually – the scoreboard, that first goal, belongs to the athletes and the coaches. You have a much more important job, and that's to focus on that second character education goal. Right. So, uh, and then for at, for uh, leaders of youth sports organizations, we want them to be active culture shapers that create a culture that, that helps coaches, parents, and athletes do the right thing. So if you go to our website, www.positivecoach.org, um, there's tons of information, including tools for for all those groups of people. And you can go and look under the parents section, under the coach section, under the athlete section, under the leader section to learn more about how you can implement these ideas and help use sports to develop better athletes, yes, but ultimately better people. And there's actually books for each one of those audiences that you could use to get started. Yeah, I, my, my first book, Positive Coaching, was about 400 pages long, and I think all of my family and a few of my friends read it, but that's about it. Um, so now my books are like 75 pages long. So, <laughs> so we've got a, a, a book for athletes. We've talked before yeah. elevating your game, one for coaches, the power of double goal coaching and one for parents, uh, becoming a positive sports parent and they're short and sweet. We also have online workshops. We have a, a biweekly electronic newsletter. People can get information and tips from lots of different ways to get 
information to people. Excellent. Well, Jim, this has been so inspiring and I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing. And, you know, I'm sure you have a lot of people to fill your emotional tank, but please accept a huge dose from me because uh, I'm really inspired by what you're doing and uh, thinking actively of how I can. There's a lot of people here in my neck of the woods that need this kind of help. So I will be thinking about how I can uh, help spread the word. Well, David, uh, right back at you. you. The work you're doing uh, to help promote the concept of empathy and uh, promote the Ashoka organization, it's really valuable. So I'm, I'm honored to be asked to, to talk with you today. Thanks so much, Jim. Be well, and I hope we'll talk again soon. You bet. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.